another very exciting episode of the Friends Talking Fantasy Podcast. My name is Charles, and with me today, as always, is my lifelong friend and co-host, Dylan. I'm ready to talk some fantasy with my friends, Charles. Yes, we say friends today because we have a very special guest. Dylan, would you do us the honors of welcoming our um, our, our special guest today? Sure, we've got Gabriella Houston on. Gabriella Houston is a London-based author who was born and raised in Poland. She's the author of the upcoming novel, The Bone Roots, which will be published on, on October 10th, 2023. We were lucky enough to have received arcs of this novel from the wonderful folks over at Angry Robot Books. Gabriella has also authored several previous novels, including Slavic fantasy novel, The Second Bell, as well as two middle grade novels, The Windchild and The Stormchild. Her work is heavily influenced by her Slavic background, especially mythologies and fairy tales from that culture. And that's wholly evident in The Bone Roots, which we are excited to talk about today. Welcome to Friends Talking Fantasy Podcast, Gabriella. Thank you for inviting me. Of course, the pleasure's all ours. We were uh, big fans of the Bone Roots. Congratulations on the upcoming release. I think this will come out before uh, the book is released, but only short, a few days before. As of recording, it's only like a week and a half, two weeks away, right? It's coming out on the 10th, so that's uh, it's coming fast. How are you feeling? Yes, it is. I, I, I don't know when it happened. It felt like it was months away, and now and now it's coming. So, yeah, I mean... It's really exciting. It's just, you know, once this review starts sort of coming in and, you know, when you see people's reactions, that's really amazing. And I've gotten quite a few reviews where I apparently made people cry. And it's just, it makes you, part of it, you feels a bit like a sadist, but then I'm just like, yeah, I mean, that's what I was aiming for. So that's good. <laughs> I feel like it's gotten to the point now where, uh, that's considered like the highest compliment for most readers is when they're saying that a book made them cry. There's like the classic Rebecca Kwong tells them to get their bucket of tears ready. So if you're if you're getting folks to bring out the bucket of tears and, and maybe they haven't <laughs> since they read The Poppy War, then uh, I think you're doing a great job. Of I it. mean, it is. It is because it's, um, you know, when people actually feel the story deeply and that kind of, you know, acts on an emotional level, that that is really what you're aiming for. Mm-hmm. So um, if they just read the story and they're like, yeah, it's just another story, <laughs> then that means you didn't do your job. For sure. I mean, getting people to cry with the words that you wrote, I take that as a very high compliment, you know, that's a, that's a hard skill for sure. Yeah. And, you know, I... You know, I thoroughly enjoyed the book. I have a special connection with it now because a few weeks ago I was actually just trapped in an airport in Boston for like nine hours and I'd already started oh, wow. this book. But for pretty much, I'd say eight of those nine hours was spent. Thank goodness I had this in my uh, in my <laughs> luggage with me and I it got me through some tough times. I'm sure authors oh. hear that a lot too. So oh, that's a nice the, story, not yes. the nine hours at the airport. But. <laughs> yes, I was trapped and I was like, oh my God. Thank goodness I have this. And I just, you know, I, I read the whole, I was ahead of our reading schedule at that point. I'm like, oh my gosh, the interview's not for another, you know, week or two, but I'm already done because uh, I, I was trapped. So yeah, thank you for that experience. That was, <laughs> it was very nice to be able to do that. I was crying for a host of reasons, but we'll say that the the <laughs> gripping story was part of it. You know, it was, that was the good I'll crying. I'll take it. I'll take it. <laughs> So, yeah, let's jump right into the book, because um, I think what's interesting, at least to us, about The Bone Roots, which, again, is coming out on October 10th, is that um, the work is heavily influenced by your Slavic culture, mythology, folk tales. So I, I was wondering if you could tell us more about, you know, this isn't your first time writing a book using those kind of your your Polish influences. So I was kind of wondering if you could tell us, you know, what is it about, you know, Polish folklore that kind of influenced your story writing and how, what can fans expect to see in The Bone Roots? I mean, something that I've been uh, sort of thinking about a lot when I was writing The Bone Roots is um, when, because I, I'm very much interested in world mythologies and I grew up reading different world mythologies and uh 
when you sort of go deep enough and read different versions of the same stories, which obviously happens over time, stories change. Um, when you start to notice the really, you know, the, the, the really important um, aspect of folklore in general, of mythologies and folklore, is the community building uh, aspect of it and the fact that it sort of serves as a as a guide to the rules and the values of a society that you live in and um uh, you can glean quite a lot about the people that tell the stories really mm-hmm. and um and so what interested me um so the bone roots is uh heavily influenced with the sort of values of a kind of pre-christian slavic tales i mean in so far as i could actually get to them because it's quite difficult you have to kind of compare different stories and mm. um because the christian influence um on slavic folklore is very distinct like so for example when you have a story about um a hero empathizing with some kind of forest creature and they band together to protect you know the community and they have this adventure and then at the end of the story uh it says but unfortunately you know after Mihao died uh he went to hell because you should never <laughs> make any kind of agreement with with <laughs> demons and evil spirits and it, it was so it's so funny sometimes because you can really see it sort of just tacked on Mm-hmm. Um, the end but when you read the uh, sort of a lot of ancient sort of Slavic uh, stories um, the values that really shine through is like kind of ability to empathize um, and also the understanding of the need for respect for the creatures of the other world you know like mm-hmm. a lot of the Slavic folkloric creatures they're not evil they're not good very sort of just ambivalent towards humankind and um they have their own sphere of influence they have their own uh sort of creatures to protect and they're just they're just not very interested in us unless we come into their territory and break the rules right mm. so this need for respect and this understanding that you know the, the world around us is not there to serve us necessarily right so we Mm. have to interact coming from that you know base level of mutual respect and understanding that you know i am here on your terms as well so uh, so, oh go ahead no so i'm saying so you know in in a lot of a lot of the creatures so the bone roots is really heavy on the different kinds of Slavic creatures. I went like all in <laughs> on the different rituals <laughs> and all, all kinds of things like that. Um, whereas uh, the second bell ha- was much more loosely inspired by, by Slavic mythology. But with this one, I used a lot of creatures that have that very kind of ambivalent attitude towards mankind. And it can be used in your favor, basically, if you know what you're doing. Yeah, now that's that definitely shines through in this novel. I was thinking uh, those kind of themes come up uh, for sure in like A Wizard of Earthsea by Ursula K. Le Guin. And I was thinking when I was saying this, like the balance with nature and the ways that interfering with that balance can have negative consequences. And that's as I was thinking, oh, that's a good uh, that's a good one to say, oh, if you're a big fan of Wizard of Earthsea, then The Bone Roots is, is an awesome recommendation there for those those same kind of themes. And uh, yeah, so you spoke also of uh, the idea of empathy and the central role of empathy uh, in, it, it sounds like, both folklore and, of course, in The Bone Roots. And I was thinking, so this book, it's primarily about... Uh, two uh, very strong-willed mothers. It's uh, Vedma Kada and also Sladyana um, Kada. That's kind of, from what I can gather in this glossary in the back of the book, it's uh, <laughs> it translates loosely to like witch or even hag. 
Um, mm-hmm. So that's that's her role. She communicates with uh, nature and uh, has this kind of mystical place, but also has this uh, more, um, I guess, uh, like typical well, earthly place and just like helping deliver babies and, and being kind mm-hmm. of a doctor-like figure in the town. And then you have a noblewoman in Slajana who's uh, lost her daughter uh, and Kata's daughter is actually plucked from this childbearing tree um and uh, it's it's really interesting of course that's the childbearing tree and taking your kid from it that uh comes up and all those themes we we're talking about around interfering with nature but also i think empathy it, it's so interesting to make like charles and i um obviously not mothers ourselves um we <laughs> Uh, however, had a really easy time connecting with this theme of motherhood in the books. And and I think that that's what's really amazing about what, what you've done here with this theme of motherhood is uh, it's something that we all can relate to, even though we might not have that personal experience. So uh, motherhood, something you've explored before in um, uh in the second bell, I believe. Uh, so a strong. And the wind child too. I can't get away from it. <laughs> <laughs> so what is it? What draws you toward examining? What is about the whole motherhood life? thing? So, yeah. I mean, um, <laughs> you know, the thing is that like motherhood has um, sort of traditionally the way it's portrayed in uh, fantasy books, it's um, quite one-dimensional. So um, women in sort of more classical fantasy books have very narrow roles. So you can be uh, the love interest, right? The young maiden that, and um, the hope of like winning this young maiden is uh, what propels the hero onward. Whereas the mother who is usually absent or dead, you know, (laughs) where all the mothers and Hobbit, you know, it's, um, or uh, or you can be a crone. So if you don't ex- actually accept your role, if you don't step away from limelight, then you can be the the evil, evil, you know, either sort of fairy tale stepmother or or the mm. uh, antagonist, like you know, um, Morgan Le Fay kind of situation. So um, so I think that it's important. Like motherhood, it's it's such a I mean, it's such a profound experience in life, you know, however you experience it. And I think it's interesting to show how different women become different types of mothers and how they, um, you know, not all of them necessarily are suited to the experience. Not all of them want the experience, you know, like all of this so much. And it's something that, you know, completely changes your life. It changes your body. It's... um, you know, it, it affects you. Like, you know, even if you don't end up bringing up your child, it affects you for the rest of your life because of how it affects your body. And I think there's just so many dimensions to motherhood that are underrepresented. You know, like I'm I'm interested in older women. Um, so I have I write a lot of protagonists that are older women. So both Kada and Sladiana are in their kind of mid-late 40s. And um they have not given up an ounce of their, you know, sexual agency, of their, um, you know, perhaps political ambition, you know, in broadly speaking. Um, so that is something that is very important to me to sort of um, explore. And, you know, people talk about representation. I mean, that's important to me, but it's, it's, it's important to me to sort of that we think about it. In different ways mm-hmm. and uh and I, I think that there's such a wealth of human experience that you know it deserves sure. its time and in, <laughs> in the spotlight yeah. for sure yeah for it's sure. interesting because we see a lot in like modern fantasy especially in the past like 10 years where there's such a resurgence in like okay how can we tell stories from new perspectives unique voices how can we bring more attention to that and i think you know the world of fantasy and the fantastical is such a great sandbox to put the lens of other cultures and experiences and identities into the storytelling. And I think that's something that's really interestingly done in the Bone Roots because you take, like, I would say the two big 
lenses and voices, motherhood, and also this this Slavic folklore and bringing them together because you had mentioned, oh yeah, a lot of, you know, these monsters, like as long as you, there's this level of respect and playing by the rules and this and that. And then you introduce, you know, Takata, this element of motherhood. She has a child that she's trying to protect. So when you have to respect these monsters and, and creatures and things like that, but you also have to, you know, be compelled to, you know, protect your child, or however you interpret protecting your child, it's kind of this breeding ground for a uh, for for a conflict and and for problems. And and we certainly know um, Kata's no no stranger to uh, to that. Absolutely. So kind of messing around with these with these ancient you know rituals and rules around how you enter a creature's area and how you like you know, talk to them how you make deals with them this and that it, it all kind of gets brought up through this idea of motherhood and and then you know the the creatures themselves you know have these interesting relationships some of them have relationships with their mothers as well so that that to me is the most interesting part and i was wondering like how when you when you get the inspiration to bring in a lot of these creatures and and that's one of the things that i thought was another really shining moment was all the creatures you brought in like what was the process like for i guess the editing process for okay here's the actual you know folklore creature here's the creature in the bone roots what was some of that process like bringing monsters into the world of the bone roots i mean you know obviously it's not an academic text so um I see it as more of a kind of traditional role of storyteller, you know, like mm. what, what, when, when all of those traditions were oral traditions, people would uh, retell the story and like add a little bit of, you know, onto it, you know, to maybe reflect the current sort of situation or, or, or the, the, the situation of their community. Uh, and I think I, I see my role as similar to that you know mm. i'm not here to sort of painstakingly gather the anthropological uh you know in linguistic information to present it in a you know scientific mm. uh text so uh so a lot of it is you know inspiration a couple of times i kind of took a creature that is quite one-dimensional and i sort of added something onto it a little bit uh, mm. from a different creature uh, not not necessarily in the bone roots but in, in the the wind child there was like one little creature that I basically just like put together <laughs> a few <laughs> a, a few things um, sure. and you know sometimes uh, it can be tricky because people are generally in the uh, English-speaking world are not very familiar with Slavic mythology and so um, sometimes they take everything at face value and they think this is the, the real mythology of, of, of this land far away. And, you know, it's, <laughs> it, I, you know, and I, I get, um, I was quoted once on someone's, like, I, just, I don't remember if it was blog post or if it was just simply uh, like a social media post. I don't remember. <laughs> but anyway, but they quoted me on like Zoria's which are like the three goddesses Zorias from Slavic mythology representing morning, noon, like, and night. Oof. And uh, um, and they quoted me from, like, the windchild on it, and I was just <laughs> sitting there embarrassed <laughs> slightly because, like, well, there's actually only two, and I kind of just messed around with it from, uh, uh, to fit my story. So, That's you know, I'm trying... <laughs> So there's a glossary at the end of the bold roots yes. where I'm honest because there's like I think a couple of creatures that are just straight up made up. So um and I'm I'm clean about that. <laughs> but, right. Yeah. You interestingly were able to like interject I, I'm I'm looking through the glossary right now, but you were like interjecting some some personality to like and it was kind of pretty much made up by the characters on this one, you know, like in the definition. I'm like, oh it's kind of fun. Like the idea of taking the glossary and using it as like a a way to interject so some offers note. Offers note. <laughs> yeah. I mean sure. it's um when it comes to the actual research you know i have an obscene amount number of <laughs> books uh, on this subject i have not necessarily read them cover to cover but took sure. more of a magpie approach um yeah i have a few bestiaries um oh. they're in polish so unfortunately i can't recommend them to the english-speaking <laughs> audience but um but they're a great source of information because they kind of have all those different creatures and it's just this wealth of 
source material that I can then infuse my story with. And there's, you know, all those different spheres of life to, um, to this, you know, ancient Slavic people. And it's interesting to play with the kind of borders and like how, how the different creatures from the spirit world sort of cross over to the other to the other side. So it's it's interesting because the only real like education I've ever had on like Polish folklore mythology is through The Witcher, of course. Yeah. And uh, um played a lot of those video games, read all the books, of course, at Andrzej Sapkowski. Uh, I feel like it's very American of me to be like, oh, you two, you must be friends, right? You know each other? Yeah. <laughs> both po- very out po- all the time. <laughs> yeah, you must hang out I, all the I'm, time. I'm, I'm very happy to ride the wave of the Witcher popularity <laughs> if it's going to, you know... <laughs> right, but, but it, it's interesting, right? Because something about the bestiary of Polish folklore is just ripe for all these really interesting kind of encounters in a <laughs> fantasy setting. You know, Geralt is fighting Strigas and all these other endless yeah. and name of, of, of creatures in the second bell. Yes, so. yes, I absolutely. do, <laughs> and I play, but I play with a kind of more. Um, so there's different versions of this Striga myth. And I'm playing with a slightly kinder one <laughs> and uh, right. sort of subverting it a little bit because a lot of the uh, folklore is just straight up monsters. Whereas in the second bio, I was playing with that notion. Right. But it, it, it's very interesting how a lot of these creatures and again, I like this is all my understandings through through fantasy retellings. But um, it, it's like we've always enjoyed talking about how like. You know, we had this whole conversation about what makes a monster, and I'm sure a lot of it was intentional, like, with its inspiration in folklore of, like, how these creatures are made. You know, you have creatures, you know, ghosts of children, right? And and they're able to kind of get involved in the story in their own way. And it just, it, it makes it that much richer in terms of, like, you can kind of build the world that you're in. You know, some of these characters had relationships with people just in the village and things like that. And it and it's an interesting kind of foundation for storytelling in a way that you don't really get from reading stories rooted in very European kind of characters and and, and things like that. So I've always just been particularly fascinated. I mean, it is by European. Polish creatures. The Western European. Thank you. Yeah. So this again, my American is showing. <laughs> I think you mean like more Anglo-Saxon. I mean, like, you know, it's, um, it's just, they they have uh, different, those societies have different values. They have very Mm -hmm. different, um, you know, they they had different way of life. And so the the stories reflect that as well. Mm -hmm. And um, in uh, one of the sort of uh, comparisons I like to draw sometimes is, uh, um, you know, when you look at like Norse mythologies and like Norse gods and um, the kind of behaviors that get rewarded in uh, in, in the Norse mythologies, like, you know, the, the tricksters sort of. I mean, you know, obviously Loki mm-hmm. ends very mm-hmm. badly, um, but uh, but through most of the mythology, like he gets away with literal murder right (laughs) Right. um but by being a trickster and you know things like betraying trust are not you know like uh, the the asgard gods betray their friends they betray their hosts all the time they murder their hosts or try to attack them you know (laughs) all of those things completely unacceptable in um in slavic folklore like you know basically the tricksters are never rewarded you try to you know not break the rules to to favor you you it's not going to end well right you uh you break the rule of hospitality like you'll get eaten by mice literally <laughs> like, you know it, it's it's that kind of um so those values don't necessarily always cross we think of those values as being quite universal and they're they're really not so depending on how the community is built and how it what keeps it together um you know uh th- those things will will sort of shine through yeah 
For sure. That's funny you bring up Loki because we we just uh, read a book not too long ago uh, that was called Loki by Melvin Burgess and uh, we had him on and he was a fantastic guest to interview. But uh, yeah, you get, I feel like Loki has really become the most glamorized uh, Nor- <laughs> Norse god and he's he's just yeah, an awful person. Yeah, I mean, person. he's awful. <laughs> like, what does it say about us that we find him so um, appealing? <laughs> and um, I was uh, reading this article recently. Uh, my friend sent me about um, the halo effect in fiction and mm-hmm. how um, there's... I mean, the most obvious thing is like beauty bias, you know, like when someone is attractive, you automatically assume mm-hmm. that they have all those other wonderful qualities. And there's certain qualities about a person or about a character or about God <laughs> that um, make us like them in spite of all the evidence pointing towards them being absolutely horrible. And like I think Loki is such an in- interesting example because this is uh, exactly what we're witnessing. He betrays everybody who ever cared for him. You know, he, he does awful things, but he's quite witty. You know, <laughs> obviously in the actual like you know Norse mythology, like this is not what we would consider wit, right? Necessarily, <laughs> uh, you know. Cutting off a woman's hair while she was while she's sleeping is not the pinnacle of humor, but it's you know, you know it, it's whatever appealed at the time. Just uh, yeah, just blatantly breaking the rules and having fun with mm. it. I guess this can be appealing for a lot of people. The idea that someone like that can be out there and get away with it and be a god at the same time is something yeah, about that's okay. very intriguing. I suppose I, it's something I actually like um, played with quite a lot in bone roots um there's specifically beauty bias because Mm -hmm. not to give sort of too much away there's characters that at first glance are quite unappealing and then they will sort of grow to be you know possibly the most like definitely my agent's favorite (laughs) character (laughs) uh, falls into that category and then you have people who are very attractive and it takes us a while to see maybe the ugly side as well for sure yeah. and you also play things with like classism too like sometimes mm. you can perceive people who are at the highest uh you know like running the show right that there may be something unlikable about someone like that but you know you kind of play with those relationships too of like oh just because I'm the king doesn't mean that I'm like think I'm necessarily better than anybody else or just because I'm a noble person doesn't mean I'm going to th- like underestimate someone of a lower class you know things like that as well come into play which Mm. or you know like more from the other side you know just just because i you you know you you think i have nothing and so i therefore i am nothing Mm -hmm. but it's um you know people finding their dignity and people um you know finding their self-respect um and how others react to to it is, is is of interest to me as well yeah i like you definitely you play with people's expectations for sure by presenting and again i don't want to spoil anything because we want we want folks to go read this and it's not even out yet but <laughs> it's uh yeah you play with people's expectations by presenting a character a certain way or packaging them a certain way in terms of their physical appearance or how you might interpret them if you had a first impression or whatever and then they'll do something that you'll just be like oh whoa i just like i did not see that coming from this person you know, like, there's one I, one part in particular that does that for me i was like oh that we're reading maybe a different book than i thought here so i, I really you know, appreciate it um, there's this uh, hilarious, hilarious book on writing that he read years ago. Uh, it's called like How Not to Write a Novel. Mm-hmm. And it is so funny. It's basically uh, written by a couple sort of publishing professionals who say we don't pretend we know how to write a novel, but we can definitely tell you <laughs> what, will, what will publish. Yeah, <laughs> what will make it unpublishable. So they go through like a lot of um, like common sort of issues in in, in in fiction writing 
and they write their own exaggerated examples and it's really, really hilarious. But there was one chapter in there where they said, uh, where it said that basically like Santa Claus cannot be the love interest in your <laughs> but like it can't be the main love interest. It can't, you know, like, so, so you see, uh, you see it in a lot of like, you know, when parody kind of account where people uh, repost bits of like, and I apologize because, you know, I'm, I'm speaking to two men, but it's like uh, women described by men badly. Right. And it's right. really funny. And you get like, you know, those, um, you know, the main character who is clearly the author's self insert is like this very unattractive <laughs> older man, you know, For and sure. this beautiful model, you know, with smiling boobs. <laughs> just yeah. sort, of, just sort of you know yeah i don't know i i read one of those like it was, yeah, it's it, fine it's like oh she sighs bosomly you know <laughs> and you're like yeah, what? yeah, yeah. or like, like you know, some authors were like and then she puts her arms under her breasts and folds them and she gets mad and you're like what kind of yeah, detail yeah, yeah. is that <laughs> I, literally there's like bits where like the breasts smile and it's just like they have their own agency all of a sudden you know but anyway and then and then suddenly in this mo most sort of unbelievable manner of his character that has nothing to recommend him becomes the main love interest for this beautiful attractive young woman um and so there was this chapter on santa claus can't be the love interest and i was thinking like well he can be to mrs santa claus <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and it, it's a sort of a kind of in a very bizarre sort of way this these kind of things stay with you and you're thinking like <laughs> yeah but you know what what maybe he has other things to recommend him you know <laughs> it's like okay so we you... write a court of thorns and roses but it's mrs claus as 20 something needing santa claus <laughs> i mean but isn't it tiresome sometimes to read a book after book of hot 19 20 year olds like for sure and it's like yeah. a universe filled with very very attractive 19 year olds and you're just like you know, but, 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 there's the rest of us here, you know, <laughs> on our varying stages of life and decrepitude that, you know, we wish we were represented in some manner. So, you know. For sure. Yeah, yeah we'll, we'll age her up for sure. Maybe modern day and they're just trying to like rediscover the passion, you know, when you're uh, as immortal as Mr. and Mrs. Claus, you know, you got to find ways to spice it up every once in a while, I'm sure. I mean, human and Santa Claus experience is endless source of inspiration. A hundred percent. We'll break some rules, maybe. <laughs> It's a funny one. I never thought of Santa Claus that way. I'm kind of uh, adjusting now. <laughs> <laughs> it Let it sink in. Let it sink yes. in. Yes. <laughs> one of the one of the other things about this book, and I guess this goes back to my like eight hour binge of it, of a large portion of it, was the pacing of it, right? Because as much as it is like you know rooted in a lot of this folklore and this and that, it's told in a very like almost I'll say modern it's kind of almost like a suspense thriller kind of thing right it's almost up against the timeline you know from the beginning there's there's two mothers they're both trying to protect their daughters only one of them can succeed right that's the premise so you're like wow how is this gonna going to play out you know you're almost kind of waiting for the inevitable and when you set up a premise like that as I don't, I've never written a book before, but if I was, I don't know if I would do that. I'd almost be too intimidated to say, two go in, one goes out. Can you figure it out? You know, so I was curious as someone who's made people cry and who's made people surprised by the <laughs> twists. Like, how do you go about setting up kind of two people like that and building up to that payoff, which can be such a daunting thing to try and surprise a reader, especially in, in like in this day and age? I mean, you know, I love um, it's it depends what you like, right? Because mm -hmm. some people love novels that sort of jump into like and it's just. Hey, you know, like really fast pacing from the first page and you have like just, you know, running and exploding and fighting from the first page. And I really like to have like a really explosive ending of a book where you have where suddenly all the different threads tie together and it feels like um, 
you know, like like an orchestra where it sort of comes to a crescendo, and it and it's mm -hmm. really exciting to write. And um, and you know, when it comes to this, was my first attempt of writing a kind of mystery. But you know, like right. so, there's mm -hmm. definitely mystery, thrillery, maybe not thrillery, mystery elements in a book, and uh, it, it was quite a challenge because you know you have to when you're building tension in a book you know it has it can't be constant it can't keep going up 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 like you have to have like little dips so that it doesn't lose its effect because mm -hmm. when you have this kind of anticipation as a reader if it just if it is constant if attention is constant it loses it's going to kind of psychological and emotional effect so you need to sort of ease up a little bit and that was the sort of biggest challenge in the writing process but something that i really enjoyed um but it's um yes i mean the the, the whole like big part of the book is that one of the characters knows what's going on and mm -hmm. the other one will slowly try and uh figure it out and piece it together and um and, you know, you, the thing about, like, you know, when you're writing mothers who are trying to protect their children, the very useful thing it does, um, from my perspective as a writer, is it instantly justifies most horrible actions in the eyes of the reader. <laughs> because, you know, like, even if you're like, you know, like you said, like, you know, you, you guys are not mothers, but you most likely know what it's like to really deeply care about someone you know mm -hmm. whether it's a parent whether it's your partner whether it's your child like you know you know what it's like to really care about someone and um and I think you know like most people have experienced it at least at some point in their lives and it's and so as, like from a reader's perspective you know when you see like okay so that's online because you can you we put like those lines right like in in the sand with like of morality but it's very relative but we like to think in absolutes mm -hmm. and we think over oh, um like some things are worth dying for like you know it's like when it comes to you know justice and honor and and being truthful and defending you know your country and your thing like those things are worth dying for it's like but yes but are they worth sacrificing your child for? Mm -hmm. That is, you know, those are kind of questions because obviously, like why we might not empathize with the character doing anything to predict themselves. The moment, you know, they, they do some something truly dreadful in order to protect their child, we, we, we take a completely different perspective. Yeah, and it's that's really interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, oh, no, like... I just think it's really interesting. The idea <laughs> that you just brought up of like, oh, wow, we uh, we can pretty easily think of ourselves like, oh, it's it's worth sacrificing your life for blah, blah, whether we do it or not. But we, we can easily think of that as being worthwhile. But yeah, it's hard to come up with anything that would be worth sacrificing a child for. And it's... Uh, uh, yeah, it it allows you to write these really complex characters because they have those kind of motivations where it's like uh, you have them doing some really uh, noble things in service of like what could be more noble than trying to protect your daughter, trying to find your daughter. I mean, uh, but then you have them doing some very questionable things in service of of those goals and it's like uh, i guess it's it's interesting it's just you have uh you have those complex character elements that make this feel very like real and present these moral conundrums uh in that sense but you also have this like fairy tale little feel to the book which is something i want to get across to the listeners where it's like reading this feels like reading a fairy tale and i mean that in a complimentary way because i'm like how do you capture that tone while also having these characters feel so 
real and complex and I don't know what how do you find that balance um I mean I think my writing style is quite it can be described as quite lyrical I suppose so in some ways so um it's it's just like a natural rhythm for me uh but I also think that once you look at the person's motivations and kind of strip away a lot of the nonsense around it it kind of like the essence of the emotions is the essence of fairy tales so you know when you read most fairy tales like you know you know you'll notice like characters don't have names right mm-hmm. there once mm-hmm. was a princess living yeah. in the castle of a good king you know like <laughs> it, it, it you have all those like you you kind of trim away the excess and what's left with is like the the heart of a story and i think this is um and this is something i strive for you know like in as much as i like writing quite lyrically i think it's um it's important to to find this balance between being economical with words and and kind of um being evocative evocative at the same time and i think the the way to do it is to kind of really root deep to like but like but why is this character doing it it's like you know why this character is doing it and like the rest of it is just window dressing you know Mm -hmm. yeah that's interesting i I feel like a lot of the books you know I wanted to go back to some of that, I guess what I would call the the modern feel of the book, which is kind of the stakes and the pacing. And you were talking about the motivations and, you know, putting your child over your own life. And and one of the things that I found fascinating about it was that you have, you know, like your two main characters, right? They're each trying to protect their daughter, right? So you have both working for the same ends and they're kind of put against each other in a way sometimes and sometimes they're together sometimes they're not it's it's one of those aspects where you're like well you don't necessarily want one to to lose or one to win it can they can one even lose or win in in this situation you know it's it's this idea that they're both working they're so i guess one of these things about motherhood is like putting your kid above everything else so when that goes up against the will of someone else who's feeling a very similar way they would do anything for their child too and then you kind of put them against each other what happens and i feel like that's a very strong driving force of the whole book because you're like oh when these two characters like learn these things about each other or learn about something else like i wonder how they're gonna kind of interact and and i i guess it's it's that sort of like two mothers coming together and how the stakes put side by side could it potentially affect the story too and it, it's one of those things that you you don't read too much about and you know we've read a lot of fantasy this year and, and it's one of those unique things like usually we we kill the mom to give the other characters motivation and, and uh in in this case it was the absolute reverse so i, I thought that like this idea of and I guess I want to get more of a sense of these two characters, right? These two mothers, like where did this kind of relationship come about of like, oh, if I put two mothers with both trying to do what's best for their kids and kind of the complexity of the relationship that results from that, like, was that, like, was that, I guess, kind of the, I think like the big, the big drive for the book. So the thing is, you know, you can, you can have two people who are pretty reasonable yeah, and then you know if you put them in an extreme situation the the result is unpredictable you know like I was talking with my friend like something I was talking thinking about a lot when um near the end of writing this book actually is the uh the trolley issue um so it's Mm. the trolley problem it's like you're familiar with it so the Um, so yeah. for those sort of listeners who, who who don't know, it's a sort of philosophical conundrum of you're driving um, a train or a trolley, uh, wherever you're based, um, <laughs> down the tracks and you, you see ahead of you one person that you love on the tracks and you can swerve, but then you'll hit like 14 people, but you don't know. And what are you going to do? And um, 
you know some people are like of course well of course you know like one life 14 lives you 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 know you would I've, I've heard people say like you know of course like I would I would hit the person I love because how dare you know I have no right to kill 14 people and me and like my friend who's also a mother we just looked at each other and was like I would sell everybody in this room for organs if it was to like <laughs> if it saved sure. my child's life. Yeah. So it's, yeah. and I th- I think um, there is like we like to to sort of often present those because you know humans like to live in a simple world. We 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 want we want to simplify this world and it uh, and it resists that. And the, the truth is that, you know, we, we want those like, we want to think that there's certain um, sort of unchanging rules of morality that everybody kind of feels intrinsically, you know, down to their soul and they would sort of adhere to it, you know, unless there was something wrong with them. Mm-hmm. And and it's very easy to believe that unless you're tested. Yeah, for certain and i think you know it's it's often in the real world like you know in in many novels you have someone who is faced you know with dreadful difficulties in order to protect the person they love right Uh, but you know the 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 enemy it might be protecting someone their love and i i feel like that is often not given as much space in a book because and for a good reason, because, you know, you know, as a writer, you want people to empathize with your protagonist. Right. And mm-hmm. if if you show the protagonist killing the body who is threatening the protagonist's village, that's fine. But if you see that from the other side, that protag- the protagonist is killing a father of five small children who look up to him, you know, <laughs> like right. that is that hits differently yeah and i think it's it's important sort of not to lose sight of this like that's why i wanted to sort of show those two perspectives those two mothers not to lose you know not to sort of get locked into this is the protagonist and so we mm. will just go along with whatever they do but to sort of see the humanity of, of the person on the other side as well yeah now, we've talked about before the idea that our heroes often kill a lot of henchmen on the way to oftentimes sparing the villain, which is an interesting... Yeah, someone who hero. was probably, <laughs> like, forcibly enlisted, right? right. And their mother is on the waiting the by family. the door, you know, yeah. planting flowers, <laughs> hoping they'll bloom just in time for her son's return, and her son's been murdered by the protagonist. Exactly. But we don't get to hear about any of that. Just to have and a then, knife over the Dark Lord and be like, you know what? I'm going to let you go because I'm such a nice guy. <laughs> I'm more interested in that mother. For yeah. sure. For sure. <laughs> yeah, we, we've often kind of entertained the idea of like, what happens if the story just left the hero and followed like that the fallout of killing that henchman and then the life that that poor henchman left behind and all the repercussions of that, you know, it's almost as interesting as whatever the hero is going to do to the evil overlord at at the end of that book, you know, it's kind of Isn't that brilliant? I mean, that Mm. is like, that's to me far more interesting because that's the story that isn't told as much. I agree. Right. And who knows yeah. if the if there's a family at home if they even understood what was happening if they even if their daily lives are affected by whatever is going well, on. What about the generational trauma? You know, For like sure. it's all yeah. of that is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's far more people in this world who have their like family stories, like you know, of the family of the murdered henchman, than they are mm-hmm. of uh, like people who witnessed the hero saving the day. Right. For sure. For sure. Yeah, sure. The murdered henchman, that's got a nice ring to it. <laughs> I'd read that. <laughs> yeah. so one, of the, uh, one of the other things I wanted to talk about outside of the Bone Roots is that you're also a co-host of a YouTube channel, right? Yes. Um, I... <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, yes, I, I mean, uh, we did do like, it was, it's like a mini series of videos. Sure. Okay. Bookish take. Um, 
with my very good friend Caroline Hardacre, who's a fantastic writer, by the way. Definitely look her up. Um, and um, <laughs> I don't know how to describe her. <laughs> so basically, uh, she ran out of time at some point, so we can't continue because <laughs> she had two babies. <laughs> so it's like, you know, people's private lives are very inconvenient for me. <laughs> like, she, what can I she say? put her children before your YouTube channel? I mean, what? really. Is but that then... <laughs> what the book is based on? Someone who would be willing yes. to murder a book the ultimate channel betrayal of our children. YouTube channel. But, you know, it was always meant to be, uh, just, yeah. it was always meant to be like a little mini series. And yeah. And her baby. So, what was it about? Okay. Uh, so, it was about basically I wrote a publication. It was more like um, basically our advice on searching for agent and how we found our agent and what our different attitude sort of approach to editing stages. Um, so, Caroline, uh, for example, like writes a book and then she rewrites it. Wow. So, she basically she writes a That's book. That's commitment. Puts it away, <laughs> writes it from scratch, oh, wow. which is the kind of level of, you know, like that, that's the kind of level of intellect that I can only aspire to. I think yeah. I'm like, I'm not sure I would be able to do that, but it, yeah, it's it really interesting how people's brains work, you know, like it's, and in itself, I think it's really interesting to talk about because we are all Nick and talk from our own perspective on on writing because it is like i mean it is it it is art right so mm -hmm. you can't it's it, it's try try to explain to someone how to compose a piece of music like you can try <laughs> you can give right, them the right. basics but <laughs> it's uh everyone will approach it differently isn't it and it's no different to writing and you know there's there's all those books out about how to write novels and um but they don't always show this tiny perspective and it's yeah. important to remain flexible and like understand that you will find your own way. Yeah, mm -hmm. we've talked to quite a few authors at this point and I think the only thing that is a through line through all of them is that they're different from each other. <laughs> like <laughs> it's there's no path to publishing or writing or anything that is just like the way to do it from what I've gathered. And I, I think, uh, of course, writing advice is helpful because you can find, oh, which of these things can I pick up? Which of these things um, are going to work for me? It's, but the also, industry yeah, is it's, changing. It's changing in um, at a pace that is very difficult to predict. And, uh, you know, and, and sometimes you look at the careers of, of people who have like, you know, really big names in the industry who started 20, 30 years ago. And you yeah. think, OK, so they start from this. OK, this avenue is closed now, you know. Oh, and they went through here. Um, that's not how that industry works anymore, you know. Right. And it's um, and it could be quite dispiriting. But then there's people who are trying new things all the time now so it's it's interesting but there is the, you know it's um it's a very complicated industry <laughs> yeah. and i i i think understanding that it's very complicated um is a good place to start yeah i've heard someone yeah. like brandon sanderson say like uh, people ask me like oh how was i able to make it and he's like that's if you want to hear the story, sure, I can tell you. But if you want to use that to try to emulate it, like that is so outdated from <laughs> what people are experiencing nowadays and the entire landscape is different. Absolutely. And the likelihood you're going to get tapped on the shoulder to finish Wheel of Time is, is pretty small as well. But <laughs> Not a so winning <laughs> strategy these days, yeah. I don't think. <laughs> exactly. It's not something you can necessarily emulate, right? Um, mm. But it's... Uh, I worked in uh, comics publishing for a bit and I was just sort of seeing how it works now and how it worked 20 years ago, 30 years ago. It's 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 very difficult to make a living out of it right now. It really is. Yeah. It's it's so underpaid. It's um, uh, companies keep a very sort of tight hold over um, 
over who gets to do what and uh, exactly and 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 I mean, it was like that in some ways. In some ways, it was worse, but people could make a little, very decent living out of it. And I've now I've met some top artists who barely scrape a living together out of it, and they have to find different avenues. You know, so so sure. so it's evolving, and I think it's it's important to sort of evolve with it. Absolutely. I mean, like when you consider back in the day, the only way, even like. 20 years ago the only way to like read a book was to go to a bookstore and buy it there's a lot an industry can control at that point it's a lot easier for someone mm. to sell a million copies when there's only like four big publishers and the, your, your local bookstore you know now it's just you can buy it on any device and read it however you want and yeah, anyone can publish yeah. it so it's just a different i mean landscape. there's a flip side to that in the um you know, I got this, um, I was talking to this agent and he gave me this, uh, this number. I did not fact check that number just, <laughs> just as a thing. So but we can set you every, also. <laughs> <laughs> so he said that every day, um, on Amazon, 4,000 new fiction titles in English come out. Wow. I believe it. And it's 4, hard 000. to. Right. Yeah. Most of them self-published, mm -hmm. but it is. An astounding number. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when my, uh, my my father was telling me, you know, when he was a, a, a young man, like sort of, you know, in the 60s, 70s, he, um, he could read, he could buy and read 100% of books in fantasy and sci-fi genre published every year. Wow. <laughs> Right, that that, you're, were, that makes sense. It's they were mostly written by white men, for sure. <laughs> of course, of course. But uh, but it, it it was a perfectly manageable number. Like you know, if you were into a fantasy and sci-fi genre, you could talk to all the other people and you know into into that genre, and you would have all read the same books. Whereas mm -hmm. now, when I compare my reading list to my friends, they barely overlap. Right. Which True. is really interesting in itself, isn't it? Like how fragmented it, it's become. So there's Absolutely. a lot of good things about it, but it makes it much more difficult for the writers who are published to make a living. Yeah. That's true. How how do you become the person of those 4,000 novels who is actually getting in front of people and getting downloaded? It's like, I mean, I admire all the work that folks who self-publish do because that is, it's hard to find a way to actually get your book to be the one that gets picked up by people. And it's... Uh, For it's, sure. And, you know, there there is a difficulty in, in that. You know, there is a lot of wonderful things that are being published um you know for, for self-publishing and then there's uh some books that do extremely well and sometimes those two categories overlap <laughs> but it's for very sure. very but it's you know it, it's it's very hard and there's all those wonderful offers whose uh, extremely original books will not be read by any significant number of people purely because you know marketing is really hard and even right. you know and having an instagram account on its own you know will not necessarily do anything you know it, it will not convert into sales so it is it, it, it is a very sort of complex situation and like figuring it out is um is going to be the next step really isn't it for sure it's always changing and it, it's it can be a, a Ultimately, I you know, you, you like to think it will be a good thing because, like you said, it's giving a lot of people the opportunity to tell a lot of different stories that may not have been possible to publish when you only release 30 books in a year and it has to be one of 30. Now you're, you're releasing as many as you want and you can, you know, tell these wilder stories, you know. So uh, you, you it, it's crazy to think and I, I feel this sometimes where I'm like, there's definitely so many books out there that I would read and be absolutely amazed by that I may never discover. And that's, I have that thought all the time. You know, it's kind of crazy. <laughs> I actively seek books out. You try and pick the best one. And you know there's just a mountain of perfect books for your reading style out there somewhere that you just have to never, you'll, you may never find. 
Yeah, it's really, it's really hard, but I'm, I mean, I'm glad that you picked up the bone roots. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Among oh, all yes. of those thousands of birds. <laughs> right, like somehow we still found a way to connect and I, I found a way to survive the Logan Airport, but uh, <laughs> that's, I'm that's true. I'm glad I helped with that <laughs> in yeah. whatever small way. Yes, and you know, 4,000... Like Oh, for sure, for sure. It, it it ended up working out. But, you know, it's one of those things like 4,000 books a day. I, I think with the bone roots, you still manage to tell, to me anyway, as someone who was reading like multiple books a month, it's like a, a very unique story. I appreciate the like, the the fast moving of it, almost this like mystery suspense piece to it, the different perspectives, you know, the um, these these new voices to these characters that you brought and the, and the way that they have their relationships with other characters. You know, it was a very fascinating book for me and I digested it. And, and that's not an easy experience uh, for me to have these days as being like a someone who's just reads fantasy, like, okay, next, 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 to, to have that experience mm -hmm. of just being like kind of letting the book kind of carry you through it you know there's definitely that i call it like suspense I'll, but you know it's that idea of like you're just you're not putting it down you're you're turning you're you're going through it it kind of it kind of takes you away for a little bit so i just, you know can, congratulations on that congratulations thank on the you. release of the bone roots and yeah thank thank you for the experience it was really it was really a fantastic read and you know we we both highly recommend it Thank you so much. <laughs> well, Dylan, anything else we would like to ask before we before we wrap it up? I think that we ought to ask where can folks find you, Gabriella? How can folks, uh, you know, connect with you? Buy your books, of course. Uh, yeah, where's the best place to reach uh, out? Well, they can they can buy my books in most places they're sold. Um, <laughs> hopefully. Uh, definitely the internet, definitely the internet. If, you know, you can never rely on like a particular bookshop to stock your books, but you know, you can always give them online. Um, if the American audience is interested in the middle grade, the children's book, uh, books I wrote, uh, the Windchild, then they're available for Blackwells in the UK and they ship them to US at no cost. Nice. Mm. So I only found this out recently. So I recommend it because <laughs> because you can buy UK only books Interesting. At, uh, with, without any shipping costs, which is nice. Uh, I'm on, well, I have a website, GabriellaHouston.com. And, you know, if someone wants to sort of contact me, then I have a contact page. Um, I'm on Twitter as well, at Gabriella Houston, which is very easy. <laughs> <laughs> and Instagram at Gabriella Houston one because I lost my login details to at Gabriella Houston. Uh, so, uh, at Gabriella uh, Houston one now. We you <laughs> I own up, like, both accounts. We <laughs> so we have uh, kind of the opposite. We have at the FTF podcast on Instagram. We ended up with at the FTF podcast one on Twitter. So we have the reverse, <laughs> although our thing, someone stole the at the FTF podcast. Uh, well, they, you um, know, rightfully were the first to claim <laughs> it. They just don't do anything with it. <laughs> mm. <Yeah>. Waste. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, we've embraced the one now is part of what you got to do. And I actually you've embraced Yeah, because you're number one. Yeah. Exactly <laughs> yes. right. Uh, Twitter, anyway, whatever that's worth these days. <laughs> but I actually did think of another question, Gabriella. I'm like, the Bone Roots is coming out October 10th. So everyone's got to get their pre-orders in, you know, make sure they get that and read that. But I'm sure when they finish that, the question will be, what's next? Are you working on anything? Is there any idea that interests uh, you? I know it's a daunting question to ask. Me. Literally, it's like, <laughs> let me publish the book first, please. But, you know, as someone now who's read it for a while now, I'm like, come, like, what, what, what's next here? Right? Like, what stories are we going to work on next? I am... Um... <laughs> I am work so I have like um so I'm working on a book that is like completely different right now. So it's a bit of a kind of more towards a thriller side. Ooh. And it's contemporary. So we'll see where that takes me. And I also am involved in like a little secret project. So hopefully I'll be able to announce at some point. We'll see. Sounds like we better go to GabriellaHouston.com and check that regularly <laughs> just to make sure we don't miss it. 
because that's sign up to exciting. my newsletter i have not actually sent a single newsletter out yet <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't be admitting it out. Maybe I shouldn't be admitting to it. You can sign up to my newsletter. You know I won't spam you. Yeah, there you go. Exactly. You you, you may never get anything. That's part of it. Something very important to announce. Oh. You'll be, you know, among the first to know. You'll want to know for sure. That's exciting to hear. I'm excited for the thriller. I can kind of see that with the bone roots. I'd be like, this is someone who I would read a a thriller novel from for sure. So that's very exciting. Can't wait to see um, what others. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Can't wait to see what other secret projects you'll be able to to share in the near future. Looking forward to that as well. Well, all right. You follow me on Twitter, so that's that's a good start. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. We'll we'll get there. We're, we're the one with the number one at the end of the handle, just yeah. so you don't follow the. Not like the pretenders, she... no. Yeah, yeah. Don't engage. Charles with is those showing guys. he never goes on social media. <laughs> we but we mutually follow each other, Charles. It's it's already happened. Yeah, I know. But what I'm saying is, don't follow oh, the don't other follow person the without. You got to look oh, for the one I, at the oh, end. I, I, I yeah. thought oh. I thought you followed the people who stole your handle right right but no, if they try and reach out you, you just ignore them you know block them or something they're imposters <laughs> yeah they're um, imposters <laughs> yeah exactly x. oh x yes <laughs> <laughs> so yeah so um oh, go ahead Dylan. <laughs> i was just make a stupid you're just trying to so trying to sag out of here yeah but so well that that's it you know gabriella thank you so much for your time i, I know it's uh late uh, across the pond over where you are so thank you for making the time to record with us today um gonna say it one more time the bone roots october 10th don't miss out guys definitely want to check that out um yeah thank you all so much for listening um have a great day and as always guys go forth and conquer friends that's our little outro bye bye